Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, and uh, just as a reminder, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, we came to a section on the subject of elders, and so I thought it'd be fitting to spend some additional time looking at uh, what elders are, what their qualifications are. We looked at one of those qualifications in particular last week that needed some additional attention, and so this morning uh, we will continue looking at 1 Timothy 3, and then um, next week we will be back specifically in 1 Peter 5, looking at the relationship between elders and the church, elders and the, and the congregation, and then we will conclude 1 Peter in that, that following week. So this morning, as I said, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read together from verse 1 down to verse 7. So Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's go again to the Lord. Well, Father, again, we are grateful for another morning to gather together to worship You and to hear from Your Word. And as we have seen over these last several weeks, Your Word instructs us and teaches us how, first of all, to to be those who are righteous before You, to be Christians, what we are to do in trusting in the Lord and repenting from our sins. It teaches us what a, a life of holiness is to look like. The Lord has also not left us in the dark on how you want your very own church, your bride, to order herself. And as we have seen, you have given to the church officers and elders and deacons to shepherd the church and to care for the needs of the church. And Lord, we desire to be a people who ultimately conform ourselves to Your Word and order ourselves accordingly. We do not want to be hasty in this. But most of all, we want to be faithful. And so, Lord, we do pray that as we continue to consider what Your Word teaches us about elders and pastors, and Lord, how they are to shepherd the flock and how they are to conduct their own lives as well, we pray that You would teach us this morning and begin to already work within our hearts and in our minds a a desire to to see this here at Burton. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as I said, we're going to finish looking at the qualifications 
of elders, particularly from 1 Timothy 3. And as we do, just allow me to begin this morning, as I did last week, by making some preliminary remarks before looking at the rest of this passage and the character traits that elders are to have. Let me first begin by restating that neither the qualifications that are here nor in Titus chapter 1 are an exhaustive list of qualifications for the office of elder. And I think that this is an important point to restate and to recognize because there may be other factors that individual local churches have to consider before appointing someone to be an elder that are not explicitly mentioned here. So, for example, several of you were asking about whether or not a man who has been divorced could serve as an elder. And I'm always grateful for those post-worship conversations, right, where those questions uh, get asked, right? It lets me know, like, you are listening. (laughs) Uh, But this is a situation, of course, where additional factors would need to be considered. Generally speaking, divorce is disqualifying because it violates the qualification and meaning of being a one-woman man, which primarily, as I showed last week, has to do with sexual fidelity and upholding the creation norm of one man and one woman being joined together in the covenant of marriage. However, it's also not hard to think of circumstances where a divorced man may still be technically qualified in accordance with these various qualifications. So, if he was an unbeliever when this happened and later came to know Christ and his whole life by virtue of that, of course, changed and he eventually gets married to a godly woman and they remain faithful to one another. That's an example. Or if a man was abandoned by his wife and and she divorced him and, and... to just avoid getting into the whole question of whether or not it's even biblical to to be remarried, just to set that one aside, let's just say that he never gets remarried in the hopes of one day being reconciled to his wife. A man like that. You might think of situations like these and even others where someone may meet the qualifications that are here and yet still the church may need to think through other factors before appointing a man in these circumstances to the office of elder. Does the congregation have sharp differences on this matter? Well, then you may need to hold off. Even if that man is qualified technically to be an elder, you may need to hold off on appointing that man to be an elder so as not to unnecessarily cause division in the church. You may need more time to to talk and discuss and teach on the matter and to work through some of those differences. And that's not to say that the church is going to agree on every single decision all the time, but you may need to hold off. It may be prudent to do so. Is there a risk of sending the wrong message about what the church believes about divorce if a divorced man is appointed to the office of elder? I mean, these are just a couple of questions that a church may need to think through that aren't necessarily spelled out here, but are matters of prudence and thinking through where the church is Uh, individually. Another point that's worth noting briefly before looking at these other qualifications is that elders must, of course, be men. Now, thankfully, this isn't a point that we're 
really unsure about here. So I don't think it's necessary to get into all of the reasons why male leadership is commanded. Um, I do want to commend to you one of those little pamphlets that's in the foyer written by Greg Gilbert that is titled, the question is, can women serve as pastors or can women serve as elders? And he gives a more thorough answer to the question. Of course, coming down on on the answer, no, but giving uh, many reasons as to why. But but let me just make a few points on the matter uh, before we move on. One is that Paul very clearly says that an elder must be a one-woman man, using the word specifically that designates a male, and not just like mankind in general. He is a one-woman man. Two, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul explicitly prohibits a woman from carrying out the functions of eldership when he says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Right? He's using the language of eldership there in the context of how the church is to conduct itself, and he specifically prohibits a woman from carrying out that role. And then three, it is very clear that the Lord has so ordered the family that the husband is to be the head of the house as Christ is head of the church. Husbands are to be leaders in their homes. And of course, that leadership is to be carried out in a loving, understanding manner. But they are to carry out their God-given duty to lead in the home. And the church is likewise to reflect those very family dynamics. Not only do we find the language of the family all throughout the New Testament applied to the church, but qualified elders are in essence to be godly family men. I mean, that's the the basic description here throughout is they have this godly character and they order their households well. They they conduct themselves in their home as godly family men. If they have any children, they love and they care for, for them. And obviously, if they are married, they love their wives well. They love their Parents, they love their grandparents and extended family. If their mother is widowed, they are going to model what caring for her looks like. And you can think of Timothy as well and his own relationship to his mother and grandmother who raised him in the faith. And and in several occasions, Paul is, is... commending Timothy's own upbringing and his relationship with his mother and grandmother. They are godly family men. And because of that, they uphold God's design for the family and reflect it in the leadership of the church. Again, the church is sort of an extension, if you will, of the family. And so for, for these reasons, and, and there are, of course, many more as well, it is in the, the Bible both explicit and assumed that elders are going to be men. Just thought it was necessary to spend some time clarifying that as well. So these are just a few additional remarks that I wanted to make before looking at the rest of these qualifications. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, the rest of the qualifications can essentially be broken down into five parts, and and we're going to look at each one in turn. Number one, Paul lists some positive character traits that an elder is to have, some positive character traits that he's to have. And then number two, he lists some negative character traits that he should not have, that should be avoided, And then third, 
he speaks about the uh, requirement to be able to teach, so teaching ability having to do with the function of the office. Fourth concerns the management of his household, and then finally is what I'm calling longevity qualifications that we'll look at at the end. So consider with me, first of all, the positive character traits that are to be seen in potential elders. These are seen particularly at the end of verse 2. Paul says there that an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then next he says sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Now, the first two of these really go hand in hand. They, They both touch on how a man thinks and reacts in various circumstances and and situations. The word here for sober-minded speaks to his mental stability. And the word for being self-controlled has to do essentially with being prudent and and wise in his judgment. We might say here that the man is, is balanced and he has a level head. He doesn't rush to judgment. He's not reactionary. He doesn't just hear something that sounds plausible and then he just runs with it wherever it may take him. No, he he considers. He examines. He wants to hear all sides of a matter and dispassionately assess it. He works to keep his emotions in check so that he responds to matters appropriately. He's not, of course, without emotion, right? We're not talking about Stoics here, but he doesn't let his emotions lead him ultimately into sin. If you think of someone for a moment who, who's drunk, right? Of course, the very opposite of being sober. They don't have control over themselves. And their thinking is, is just all over the place. One minute they can be friendly and seemingly relaxed and looking like they're having a great time, and then somebody does something that just sets them off. They may not even know exactly what it was, but somebody irritates them in a particular way, and it's like the the person who was friendly in one moment becomes angry in the next, and there's just no stability there. Men can be like that in their thinking, apart from any alcohol. It's like one minute they believed one thing and perhaps they thought well of others and and then the next they hear some new theological argument or or they hear some accusation against someone. Rather than carefully and diligently working through the matters, they just embrace whatever the new plausible sounding claims are. It, It sounds good, so it must be true. And oftentimes, the acceptance of the new claims comes with a rigid dogmatism, however uninformed it may actually be. And just think about what that kind of man can do to a church. You have a pastor or elders who maybe one year, they they hear about this new and exciting church planning movement. Right, This is the, the new idea that's out there. And it's going viral. Perhaps they even read an exciting book about it. And so they they tell the church about it. And they tell everyone, we're going to join up with this this new church planning movement and do a lot of things that they're doing because it really looks like it's working. And so it has to be a movement of God. Maybe we've got to make some changes around here. It's necessary that we no longer look like an old fuddy-dud church. We, we remove all of these pews. We get them out of here. We get some new chairs with cushions and throw some lights in here. I mean, we just got to make it look like the church planning movements that we've seen. Then two or three years pass. You didn't get quite the traction that the others did. And you get a little depressed about it. And then you start thinking through it. And you, you reason, oh, you know. These church planning movements, they were all based in cities. They were in major cities. It's more of a city-based church planning movement. We're out here in the rural area, so of course it's not going to work. And then you hear about this this new other thing. 
the new house church movement. It's getting a lot of buzz. And you get convinced, oh, you know, real Christianity is about meeting in houses because, of course, that's what the early Christians were doing, even though it was kind of out of necessity, but that's neither here nor there. But, but this is what's getting all the buzz. You've got to meet in a house. And if you meet in a house, that's really holy, good, solid, biblical Christianity. And this will really spread the gospel. And so then the church starts doing that for a period of time. It's new and it's exciting. We're like the early Christians, secretly meeting in houses so as to avoid persecution and death. That's not actually coming. (laughs) But it's exciting, nevertheless. Inevitably, however, this will fade. Then some new fad will replace this one, and the cycle will just repeat itself over and over and over again. A man who is like this, or elders who are like this, or the the kind of people who do not really carefully consider matters. They're like drunkards in their minds. It's a man that stumbles around, gets blown by every wind of doctrine, every new thing that comes out. Whereas what the church needs are men who are stable, men who are firmly grounded and who carefully consider all matters, whether they be matters of doctrine, whether they be relational matters, and they consider them without rushing into hasty decisions. It needs men who aren't going to drag the sheep into every single ditch, but who will keep them on the narrow path and who can be a stabilizing influence when the sheep begin to stray rather than being the cause of all of the straying. Now, in addition to this, Paul says that a man ought to be respectable and hospitable. Respectability here is a very broad term, but it has to do with how a man conducts himself appropriately. In fact, the same word is used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 to speak of a woman's dress being modest or appropriate or respectable. Her outward appearance is respectable. And a man's overall character ought also to be worthy of admiration. And then with respect to hospitality, we we looked at this idea in more detail in 1 Peter 4, verse 9, so I'm not going to belabor the point again, but in essence, the man ought to have an open home. He welcomes people into his home, and particularly those who he may not know very well. the, The person who's considered... The stranger, which, of course, if you remember from 1 Peter 4, verse 9, it doesn't necessarily mean just some random person off the, the side of the road. I mean, it could be, but it can also be somebody who you've got to know and it's been very, very brief, right? The point is you want an open home, right? You're welcoming people into your home. So, so these are some of the, the positive characteristics uh, that we find here. So I, I want to move on. Second, to consider some of the negative character traits that an overseer should not have. And these are found in verse 3. Paul says of an overseer that he is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now, it should go without saying that being a drunkard includes being ruled by any substances. Again, we we don't want to have this hyper-literal reading where drunkenness, the abuse of alcohol, has nothing to do with the abuse of any other substances. One of the fruits of the Spirit is that a man is self-controlled. And being a slave to any substances is evidence of a great need for repentance, not an opportunity to lead in the church. 
Similarly, being violent is evidence that a man is unable to be self-controlled when it comes to his anger. And that lack of self-control within his passions is also something Paul says is and should be disqualifying. I'll say more about not being quarrelsome in the next point. So the last one that we see here is that an overseer is also not to be a lover of money. He's not greedy. He's not manipulating the Word of God to receive a ridiculous amount of money for himself so that he can purchase a Learjet and fly wherever he wants to. The basic tenets of the prosperity gospel that's so popular through TV channels like TBN and, and other avenues should fall on its face by virtue of it being a violation of this very qualification. Should not be greedy. He doesn't hold on to money as if it all belongs to him. And he certainly does not scheme to nickel and dime people out of their own. He doesn't peddle the Word of God. An elder ought to model the generosity that everyone in the church is likewise called to display. If he's going to give instruction, if he's going to give biblical instruction in what it means to set aside a portion of your earnings to give back to God and to give to the work of the church and the spread of the gospel, and at times to even give above and beyond that when various needs arise, he better display that same kind of generosity lest he preach like a hypocrite. It has to be modeled from his own wallet. He's not holding on to his own money as if it all belongs to him. And should model that for the sheep. Now, for the sake of time, allow me to just move on to the third category, which has to do with teaching ability. Paul says in verse 2 that an over must be able to teach. This is a qualification that, of course, has to do with the function of elders, their work and labor. It is the responsibility of the elders in the church especially to be able to teach and preach the Word of God to the church. We need to be careful, however, even as I say this, we need to be careful not to restrict this teaching ability only to the public proclamation of the Word from the pulpit. It is, of course, always nice when a potential elder is a gifted orator and is able to preach in such a way that we can listen to the man for hours on end. That is not primarily what Paul has in mind here. Let me direct your attention to Titus chapter 1 where we see this same qualification in the parallel passage being expanded on even further. Paul says in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 that an overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's essentially three requirements here. One, the overseer receives the Word as taught. He doesn't try and reinvent the wheel. He doesn't vainly attempt to update the Word of God to fit a new world. He is a preserver of the Word. He receives it. He holds to it. Two, he can instruct others in it. And in the many doctrines 
that arise from it, which also includes instructing people in how to live their lives in accordance with it. And you can actually see this fleshed out even more in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says to Titus there, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to describe how older men and older women are to live and how younger men and younger women are to conduct themselves in accordance with the gospel. So, so the elder ought to be able to teach the Bible, to teach the doctrines of the Bible, and to teach how this requires a certain life lived in accordance with the Bible. And if people, as they often do in our day, say, what gives you the authority to say how I ought to live? The answer is, not from myself, but from the Word of God. The elder points to the Bible. And then, the third requirement of teaching is that an overseer is able to rebuke those who contradict the Word of God. So you must not only know how to explain what's in the text and apply it to the people of God, but you must be skilled enough to spot the errors in false teaching and to answer and rebuke it for the sake of guarding the sheep from wolves. We might add to this as well the fact that this does not mean you're just looking to argue about anything and everything. That is, of course, the definition of being quarrelsome, which Paul says is disqualifying. And many men are like this. They act as if being a faithful pastor or being a faithful theologian, or even just being a faithful Christian, requires that you be skilled at nitpicking every spot in someone's eyes and challenging them to debate about it. It's, it's always looking for something that is wrong. And really, what pastors ought to be doing is it's a mix. It's a healthy mix of both. It's positive instruction from the Word of God. This is, this is the model. This is the glorious vision that the Lord has given to us of holiness. This, this is what should be appealing. right? While at the same time, especially when errors do arise or, or at times to preemptively stop them from arising, you have to do the, the negative thing and point out the errors and correct them. It's both. And a lot of the times, people can err on either side. You never want any sort of conflict, and so you would never address errors. Or on the other side, you think everything is an error, everything is wrong, and everything has to be thrown out and remodeled. That is ultimately a man who has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And not knowing when to use the Word of God as a sword, when to use it as a rod to direct the sheep, and when to use it as a bomb is the error of many. Having said this, it is imperative that overseers be willing and able to confront errors when they arise. And they ought to be prepared to suffer for it as well. To have your name maligned, your character assassinated, and perhaps to have many who despise you. In another passage, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, where Paul uses this same word for, for being able to teach, Notice what he says. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, and then notice, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents 
with gentleness. Now, why would Paul include patiently enduring evil in a passage where he is speaking about the ability to teach? It's because that teaching will require correcting opponents. And unfortunately, it will often be the case that those opponents will seek to do you evil. That's what he's preparing him for. And you will have to endure it, and you will have to endure it no matter how painful it may be. That's the lot that falls upon you. But this is part of being able to teach. Confronting opponents with gentleness and enduring evil. Now, these teaching requirements, of course, that that Paul expands upon in 2 Timothy and in Titus, these requirements are not confined, as I said, to the public preaching of the Word. This can take place. This can take place. Then on Wednesday. This can take place. This can take place. Where you have a a, a godly elder who's taking others aside and discipling them one-on-one. This can happen in a variety of ways. It can be at the church or it can be outside the church. The point is that the ability to teach does not mean that a man is a gifted speaker. Only that he is fully competent to instruct from the Word of God likely in a variety of settings. So even as as we consider various men who could possibly be elders here, I would actually encourage you all to examine how well they teach the Word of God, especially outside of the pulpit, and how often they're doing that as well. Now, moving on to the fourth category, A potential elder must have a managed household. In verses 4-5, to Paul says of an elder, he says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then he gives a reason why, assuming the case of a man who fails to do this. That's his assumption here in his argument. In other words, verse 4, if you look there, asserts the positive example of a managed household in that if a man has children, they are submissive to him. He leads them well. But then verse 5 draws a conclusion based on the assumed failure to manage well, as in the man's children are not submissive. Failed in his responsibility to lead. And Paul concludes from this failure that if a man's own children do not respect him, do not submit to him, and do not follow his leadership, he says, How could he expect the church to do so? And how will his leadership in the church be any different from what it is at home? He says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, and they've proved that, of course, by having children who are debauched and insubordinate, how will he care for God's church? Now, as I argued last week, Paul is not here establishing a requirement that a man have multiple children in his house and that this is the only way he could know how to manage his own house. He is simply using a failed example to establish his point. And the point is that men in the home, and and that is really all men, but especially those who may serve as elders, men are to run their homes as God has designed. Men are not to be passive and let the burden of decision-making fall upon their wives. They are to love their children and shepherd their hearts. And they do this, among many ways, by acting as fathers who are 
over their children, who have authority over their children. I think one of the worst things that parents do these days in the blame largely falls on the fathers is allowing so many children to run the house. An eight-year-old child wants an iPhone. Yeah, sure, no problem. We'll, We'll get you one. The child wants to play 10 sports simultaneously, which is going to require your entire life to revolve around every single sport that is under the heavens. Yeah, sure, go ahead. We'll do that. The child wants to watch TV all day. Yeah, sure thing. They want to gorge themselves on all the sweets. Yes, yes, that's fine. Have at it. They want to talk back or be disrespectful. That's fine too because we don't want any conflict in the house. The child rules the home in many, many houses today. And it inevitably results in children who never mature, never learn to actually become adults, never respect authority, and many of them end up resenting their parents because the parents never established any actual order in the home. A Christian home is to be one where children are children. They're children. The parents guide, shepherd, and discipline their children. They shape their children. They form their children. The father is to be the head and the mother is to manage the home under his leadership. And this is, again, especially important for all Christian homes. But when we are thinking about elders, this is above and beyond a a great, a needed requirement for potential elders. Now, the last set of qualifications can be placed under the heading longevity requirements. And I'm calling them longevity requirements because it's evident that Paul has a concern to guard potential elders from falling. And falling rather quickly. In verse 6, you notice there, he has a concern for the danger of pride and a man becoming puffed up with conceit so that he falls into the condemnation of the devil. And then in verse 7, he has a concern for a man's public witness and the danger, notice the language again, of falling into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul does not want a situation to arise where a man is appointed as an elder and then, not long after, has to be removed because of some moral failing. In the case of a new convert, a man like this would likely be appointed as an elder not because of his spiritual maturity. There's no spiritual maturity there. He's a new convert. But he would be appointed as an elder because of something like his personality or his natural giftings, his speaking abilities, his persuasiveness perhaps. He's a great speaker. He's very charismatic. He knows how to win a crowd. And if a man like this is appointed as an elder, the church is basically setting him up for a fall because the danger of pride will be so great. As I was thinking about this this past week, it it reminded me of Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill and and the fall that, that happened there. And in particular, of course, Christianity Today did, in essence, an expose on everything that happened there. But, you know, Driscoll was a a new pastor and immediately just got thrown into the spotlight. I mean, he's a great speaker, charismatic guy. He's he's winsome. Everybody wants to listen to him. His his church is exploding. They're, They're growing through the roof. He's just on the circuit now. He's preaching everywhere. He's at all these major conferences. Everybody wants to hear from him. Everybody wants his books. 
That's a lot of attention for somebody who is so new and so young. And what it inevitably resulted in was a great fall. And that's what Paul's warning against here. Not to thrust someone who, who may be otherwise a good and godly Christian into a situation where the temptation of pride will be so great that they will fall. And then, of course, in verse 7, a man may put on a decent face before others in the church, but if his true character at work is one of godlessness, eventually that's going to come to light and will require his removal from eldership and will bring shame to the church. How could you have appointed a man like this? We see his life. This is a wicked man, even to our standards. It would bring shame. And so he's warning against this very kind of person and situation as well. The point is that elders ideally are going to be able to serve in the church for the long haul. They're there to shepherd people, not just for a year, not just for a few years, but willing for generations to, to see people grow old in their walk with the Lord, to see children who were born in the church grow up and flourish within the church. You want elders who are going to be there for a long time to shepherd people throughout their lives. Indeed, I think one of the most detrimental things that can happen to a church is when there is a constant turnover of pastors. There's no stability in the church. There's no trust. A lot of the times there's a contentious relationship between church members and pastors because all the church members have ever known is one coming in and leaving within the next year or two or three or four. So what do you expect is going to happen? The next guy that comes in is not going to be here that long. I'm not going to trust you with anything. That constant turnover is not healthy for the church. Pastors should be men who model what it means to give your life to the church. One of my favorite pastors in D.C., Mark Dever, has a, a saying that he, he says to, to all men who are considering going into the ministry, you know, what, what are you supposed to do when you get to the church? Preach, pray, and stay. That. Preach, pray, and stay. And that stay, most often, does not happen. Challenges happen. Conflicts happen. Evil happens and it's not patiently endured. It's time to go. And it's hard. Trust me, it is hard to endure. But that's the call. To endure. To preach, to pray, and stay. Elders are to be fundamentally churchmen and not church hoppers. I mean, it's, it's hard to call the people of God, it's, it's hard to call church members to stay and to stop hopping from one church to the next when pastors are modeling church hopping. That's not what they're to be. They are fundamentally church men. They are men of character not necessarily of charisma. They are men who model what it looks like to love and follow Jesus for generations. It is, no doubt, a high calling. And it can be dangerous. It can be heartbreaking. But when men step into this role and they stay there, the church can flourish. The church gets stronger. 
the church theologically can grow stronger and relationally grow stronger and it can flourish because this is how Christ has so ordered the church for His people. This is His design. In the same way that He's designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, He has designed the church to be ordered with elders who shepherd for the long haul the people of God in the church. And in that design, the people of God flourish. So friends, that's what we want. That's what we want to pray for. That's what we want to work for. That's what we want to trust God in. So let's go to the Lord again and ask the blessings on His Word and ask for His kindness and mercy to do us good in this way. Father, most of all, we want to be a people who are faithful. We see so many examples in the Word of God of times when your people knew your will, they had your Word, they knew what you required, and they wanted to remake it, reinvent it, update it, reshape it. We are called fundamentally to be a people who who hold to the trustworthy word as taught. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be kind to us here. That as this is on our hearts, that is, as this is what we desire here, Lord, that you would raise up from among us men who are willing and able and who are qualified to shepherd the people of God here for the long haul. And, Father, that we may be able to look back in 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years. And we may be able to say that the elders that we began with were faithful and good, but boy, the elders that we have now far surpass them. But we want to be a church who grows in maturity and holiness. But Lord, we need Your grace and we need Your mercy upon us for this to take place. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, you would do this for us. That we would be faithful to your word and that you would be faithful as you always are to keep your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name.